0: love for you to join me in Luke chapter 17. We're going to work through a passage of scripture that contains a story that I'm going to assume is largely familiar with any veteran churchgoer. It's a little bit of an odd man out. I'll expound on that in a moment. It seems like it's ill-fitted, ill-placed. But there's a lesson in here for us. I don't know about you, I tend to be cynical. I tend to take things for granted. I think to a large degree you are like me in that it is amazing. I might use this word. It's actually sad what we are willing to take for granted. It's sad what we are willing to overlook as miraculous. It's incredible what it takes to elicit A heart of thanks from within us. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that backs this. I cannot verify whether or not this story is true. I assume so. I'm saying it in church in a pulpit, which means it probably is. I heard a story about a large dog that walked into a butcher shop. The dog had a purse in its mouth. The dog walked up to the meat case and stood there, and the butcher looked down at the large dog and said, What is it, boy? Kind of jokingly, he asked, Do you want to buy some meat? Woof, the dog said. All right. He looked back down at the dog. He said, Well, what kind of meat do you want to buy? Do you want liver? You want bacon? You want steak? Woof. The dog said, All right, steak it is. So, do you want half pound? Do you want a pound? Woof. All right. Pound of steak it is. The dog set the purse on the counter. The man, the butcher, opened the purse, saw the exact precise amount of money for a pound of steak. He took it out. He bagged and wrapped the steak, gave it to the dog, purse back to the dog. He's completely locked in at this point. Dog leaves the butcher shop. He's got to see where this dog come from and what this dog is all about. He follows the dog down the street. Interestingly, it goes into an apartment building. Up to the third floor, the man is following close. As the dog gets to a certain door, it scratches on the door of the apartment. Keep scratching and keep scratching until a man opens the door and angrily begins to berate the dog for scratching on the door. The butcher intercedes. He says, stop yelling at that dog. That's the most intelligent animal I've ever seen. Intelligent, the man yelled angrily. It's the third time this week he's forgotten his key. It worked about the same in the 945 service too. But I'm going with it. Thanksgiving, what do I have to lose? A dog doing all that, and you're focused on the fact that the dog forgot his key. It is stunning what we in our everyday lives, I'm talking about you and me, people gathered together in this room, will overlook and take for granted. And sometimes we take the most miraculous things for granted. We esteem lightly Really, the goodness of God. That's the core message this morning of this story contained in Luke chapter 17. And I want you to note as Luke is pinning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he starts with this phrase, and it came to pass. That's kind of like once upon a time. And it came to pass as he, and this is Jesus, went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Now Luke's just telling us Jesus is going to Jerusalem and this is the path of his journey. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger? And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. This is a pertinent message for Thanksgiving week. We, as individuals, are compelled, I might use the word coerced, this week to acknowledge that God has been good to us. It is natural for us this week to pause to say thank you, to exhibit gratitude. But I will say to you, indicative of our heart's condition, oftentimes we overlook the daily good things that God does. Now, one author called this segment of verses the odd man out. It seems like it's ill-fitted. It's different than the discourses up to Luke chapter 17, and it's different than the discourses after. But Dr. Luke, who was a medical doctor, is inspired by the Holy Spirit and intentional in its placement. He shares this story with us. It's an actual real-life living illustration of the power of jesus and more importantly for us is man's response to the intercession of jesus in an impossible situation and he begins by telling us that jesus was on a journey jesus is now working his way down to the city of jerusalem and he passes through Samaria and Galilee. This is of note to us. Jesus passing through. Jesus is about to pass by this particular village. Now, the village is unnamed. Obviously, it's not important for us to know the name of the village, but we have to grasp what Jesus did is countercultural. He said he passed through Samaria and Galilee. The scriptures teach us about the hostile relationship between the Jew, the religious Jew in particular, and the Samaritan. And this hostility was so deeply rooted that when the Jews wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, they would actually cross over the Jordan River and they would go through the Transjordan on the desert highway and cut back across. They would do everything in their power to avoid even traveling directly through Samaria. So Jesus already is conveying to us something of intentionality. He is passing through this way according to his sovereign plan, getting ready to apply his miraculous power, and there is something relevant for us. He arrives at an unnamed village, and he is met immediately by ten lepers. Leper colony, perhaps, has met in the outskirts of this village and they're using it as a base of living, unfortunately and sadly, until they die. You see, here, if you were a leper, you would have to live outside the common village area. Segregated, you had to live away from people. They were considered infectious. They were considered unclean. They were considered unwanted and, by the religious sect, even unholy. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, already dead men. There's no more fearful diagnosis in this ancient setting than to be told you have leprosy. In fact, in many ways, it was truly a death sentence. One wrote, whenever another human came their way, lepers were required to shout unclean. They were actually segregated from society. They were ordered to dress distinctively so that people could avoid them. Within their living hell, which is probably a way to describe it, they longed, they hoped for it, they fantasized about some intervention that would require miraculous power so that they could re-enter society and be healed from their dreaded condition. To continue to expound so we understand the sense of isolation, we must grasp the desperation. One wrote, lepers would build little lean-tos or little huts just outside the village border where they would have to now live at a distance. You can see in your mind these shanties, these huts, this little village really of junk that they have outside the village. We know they're at a distance because even Dr. Luke told us that they shout to Jesus from afar off. They knew better than to go near him. They call out to Jesus from far away. Some of the lepers, another wrote, might have family members designate a place where food would be left for them from time to time. It was there that perhaps some token of love or support would be left. But by and large, this death sentence left people alone. Most of the time, life would just move on without them. They would be forgotten over years, separated from their children, from their spouses, from their synagogues, and from their friends. One wrote, and it's kind of painful to grip, they were close enough to see their children playing, but not close enough to hug them or have a conversation with them. They were close enough to hear laughter from the village, but not close enough to know why or to join in. They might have looked like they had just come out of the grave, literally by the tone of their flesh, but they were alive. They were real. They were sensitive human beings, living separate from everyone as their life rotted away. There was no human cure for this disease. And miraculously... And intentionally, Jesus, on His way to Jerusalem, passes directly through Samaria and Galilee. And as He arrives, these ten lepers shout out the traditional plea in the presence of Jesus. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. Ten lepers are going to be healed. Jesus... Master, have mercy on us. They know who He is. They call Him out by name. They identify Him as Master. It's the same as saying Rabbi or Teacher. It's amazing to me. How did they know that this was Jesus? Well, the fact is, Jesus has been publicly ministering up to this point for a couple of years. What He has done in Judah and Galilee and in Samaria has been miraculous, literally by nature, and the news has spread like wildfire. One pictured how they might have found out by saying maybe somebody came to the limits of communication with the lepers and shouted out, there's a man named Jesus raising people from the dead. He's making the blind see, the deaf hear and the lame walk and leap with joy. Watch for him. Maybe someday he'll come this way. This is what he looks like. And there's always a group following him. I don't know how they found out, but they knew. And unbelievably, on this particular day, there comes a small gathering of people toward their unnamed village. I wonder if sometimes Jesus didn't just thin out the religious crowd that was driving him nuts by passing through Samaria. As Jesus arrives near the village, the disciples are no doubt with him, and one or two of the lepers peering up sees and knows and applies, this is him. This is the moment we have waited for. This is the scene that we have fantasized about. This is incredible. And they begin to cry out, Jesus! Master, have mercy on us. In our language, we might say, please, please. please." There's desperation in their plea as they cry out. They're lamenting, please have mercy on us. The desperation would have truly been palpable. They were crying out, needing help. And Jesus does something that I think is strange. In verse 14, and when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. Now, is that not a strange thing? Go show yourselves unto the priests. We're asking for mercy. We're pleading for intervention. We're acknowledging who you are. You can hear our desperation. You can hear our lament. Go show yourselves to the priest. Why didn't Jesus just go over and touch them? I've done a lot of study on this, and I've settled on this. I don't know. Why didn't Jesus just say, be healed? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Now, that was an impossibility for them. Go show myself to the priest. I'm not even allowed to enter into the village, much less go near a priest. Those self-righteous, condescending religionists will look down on me. History will tell us that a priest would not even buy from a merchant who was selling his wares on a street that a leper had walked down. And you're telling me to go to the priest? Well, the Bible sheds light on it, because back in the book of Leviticus, we know it was the priest who was authorized to make the diagnosis of leprosy. It was one of his responsibilities. Separate this individual from the people, and if you were healed, which was rare or you were in the process of healing, which again is incredibly rare, you would return to the priest so that he could declare you free to re-enter society. The only reason you would ever go to see the priest, if you were a leper, was if you had been healed. And so what Jesus is asking them to do is to take a step of faith without having any evidence. I, again, don't know why Jesus chose this method. But it's only as they obeyed that they were healed. The second part of verse 14. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. Maybe you could understand that. Only after they departed were they healed. They're exercising faith in the healing power of Jesus by even undertaking the journey. If I were to say to you, "You're a millionaire. Go to the bank and withdraw a million bucks," how many of you would bounce a check? How many of you would not have sufficient funds? I want to see somebody raise their hand because I will talk to them after. If you have enough money in the bank to go draw withdraw ten million dollars, see me after church. I want to. I just want to be your friend. I'm not gonna go do that and look like a fool. You're asking me to take a step of faith. As they went, the Bible says they are healed. All 10 lepers undertake this journey. They don't have mirrors, they're looking at each other and they can see their own flesh. I imagine that as they undertake this journey and they are healed, and I don't know if it was two or three steps, I don't know if it was the moment they pivoted, I don't know if it was as they got closer to the village gates, what I do know is that they were healed and I'd imagine they begin to pick up pace. What once was lamentation is now outright elation. They're running into the village. They're desperate to get to the priest so that they can be declared clean. They're out of quarantine. They're already thinking about hugging their spouse or holding their child or walking the market, returning to life as they knew it. Ten lepers are healed. A mass healing has just occurred. Tragically, Only one person returns to glorify God. That's what we read. In verse 15, note this. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. One out of ten made the decision to turn back And go towards Jesus and note the declaration of the divinity of Jesus Christ when he goes to Jesus to glorify God. They are one in the same. That's what Scripture teaches us. This man pivots to say thank you and he does so with a loud voice. Again, let me emphasize that. Not quietly. Not subtly, not with embarrassment, not with a whisper, he glorifies God. Even the word in the original language in the Greek we transliterate into the English with a megaphone. I would venture to say we lack the desperation that these lepers had when they asked God to intercede, to intervene, and to heal them. Sometimes we would do well to be humble enough to be desperate for God's attention and intervention. Certainly it's declared unto us that this man shouted out from a distance, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And with the same volume and the same desperation that he shouted out for healing, he now returns and with a megaphone, he glorifies God and says, thank you. The worship this man gives at the feet of Jesus, get it, is tantamount to believing in Him for salvation. Don't miss the obvious here. All ten were cleansed. It didn't matter if they were Jewish or Samaritan. The gracious power of Jesus healed them all. Don't equate the physical healing with spiritual salvation because it is here that this man is told your faith hath made you whole. This man goes away saved. Now, I happen to believe that all nine that ran into the village were happy that they were healed. I'll go so far as to say I'd imagine that all nine that ran into the village were thankful they were healed. But only one said it. Note in verse 16, he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And this is one of those Bible phrases that you think... I don't know that that was a necessary statement, but the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And, by the way, the one that said thank you was a Samaritan. By the way, the one that paused and said thank you, Jesus calls him a stranger, an outsider from the covenants. An outsider of the promise. One who didn't grow up in a home where he knew to look for the coming Messiah. And Jesus said, it's this stranger that says, thank you. It's almost like Luke is saying, the one guy you wouldn't have expected to come back and actually thank Jesus, the Messiah, is the one guy that came back and did it. And he worshiped the Lord. I love how one pastor phrased it, this was his first act of freedom. His first act of freedom was not to run back to his home, not to run into the marketplace, not to search out his loved ones. His first act of freedom was to go close to Jesus. He had the audacity now to pass up the leprous boundaries. He goes close to Jesus and he says, thank you. And then Jesus asks a question or two. Verse 17, and Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. I think Jesus is expressing disappointment. Jesus is expressing disappointment with this reality. There was something more I wanted to offer. There was something more that I had, but they have not returned. The other nine are too earthbound, too wrapped up in themselves to thank him in person. Jesus knows where they are. Jesus knew the itinerary of all nine that were healed. He knew their genetic structure. He's creator God in the flesh. He knew the number of hairs on their head. He knew what awaited them. And to be quite honest, they should be thankful, and you should too, that I'm not Jesus. Because if I'd have healed all nine and they'd have run away, I'd have just snapped my fingers and given them leprosy again. Make them come back. Ask for help. I help them. They run away again. Leprosy again. We're going to figure this out, fellas. You're going to say thank you. You recognize that when Jesus healed those nine, he already knew they weren't going to say thank you. You recognize that when Jesus healed all nine, he knew only one was going to say thank you, and that it was a stranger, an outsider of the covenant, a Samaritan, and yet... Jesus healed them all. God is gracious and he is good, the Bible tells us, to the just and to the unjust. The sun doesn't just come up in the morning for the just. God's good to the whole world. God takes care of it. His goodness holds it all together. He's good to the just and the unjust and he's gracious to be good to people at times even when they don't say thank you. It's easy for me to look at these nine And chastise them for their lack of gratitude. It's really hard for me to assess my own ingratitude. As I worked through this message this week, I would think to myself, and and get it, I'm admitting to you, I'm a malcontent a lot, I'm cynical a lot. It is easy for me, it is my status quo, it is me to just take things for granted. But this week I've been telling myself, say thank you. Say thank you. Don't think thank you, don't feel thank you, say thank you. I should say thank you for you that are in here. Now I'm more thankful for the 945 service, but I'm also thankful for you. Look around this room and just say thank you. When you go out and get in your car, just say thank you. When you're in your car and maybe it's only one, maybe it's you alone, maybe it's you with two or three others. And for those of you that have more children than that, God bless you. But just say thank you. You say, you don't know. It's hard to say thank you for this one. Just say thank you. And when you get on the road and you're driving down, just say thank you. And when you get back to your house and you pull in the driveway, say thank you. Don't just think it. Don't just feel it. Say it. That's the impetus of this passage of scripture. Come back and glorify God. Did you note when Jesus asked specifically, didn't I heal 10? Where are the other nine? He is assessing who says thank you. We don't like to think of things like that with God. We don't like to imagine that he personally assesses and grades our life's exam. But Jesus at times said, greater faith has never been shown than that. When the widow gave two mites, Jesus said, boys, boys, look at this. That's the biggest offering given today. He's assessing What I know in this moment is Jesus is saying outright, I know who says thank you and I know who doesn't. And you and I should be thankful that he's gracious to us anyways. But what I can tell you plainly is that Jesus knows whether you've said thank you or not. In Romans chapter 1, there is outlined for us the downward spiral of society into the degradation of sin and further perversity. In Romans 1, listen to this segment from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Why? What does that mean? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto him for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse you say what no what Paul's writing really smart there and I'm not really smart what's he saying he's saying this Every inhabitant of earth has an inner awareness of God because God has shown himself to mankind. In creation, it is declared the reality of God. His reality is so declared in generic form to the whole world that every man on the face of the earth is without excuse when it comes to what they do with their knowledge of God or not. Now, he's not saying everybody has a personal relationship and knowledge of God. But he is saying there's enough of an awareness of God. It's manifest in every man that they are now without excuse. And then he says this. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Everybody knows deep down inside of them, that there's something more. God, all the way to the Godhead, divinity is declared, and He is saying, in effect, even though they know, quote-unquote, about God, even though they have a vague awareness of God's existence, there is a refusal to glorify Him as God. He has revealed Himself, and they are without excuse yet they refuse to glorify Him. The unbelieving man or woman refuses to give God glory for who He is. Almighty, Creator, Sustainer God. One writer said this, Rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one who cannot say thank you. Another said, Has it ever occurred to you that one of the key characteristics that distinguishes a believer from a non-believer is the believer's ability to say thank you to God and mean it? Romans 1 is declaring unto us the degradation and the deeper and further perversity of a society when they refuse to glorify God and refuse to thank Him for who He is. Let me expound further. Another said, There are two primary sins that are the most basic of all sins. They are the root of every other sin, and they are two sins of which all human beings in their natural unconverted state are guilty. Those two sins are the refusal to honor God and ingratitude toward God. If I were to ask you, he wrote, What's your most base sin? What's your worst action of evil? Would you come up with something like failure to be grateful for God? Hardly. But there it is in Scripture. That ingratitude toward God is our fundamental problem. We think that God owes us everything we receive and even more than we've gotten. He concludes, if a person is truly grateful, he shows it. Shows it in worship and service. That's the part of this passage that is so precious. The response of the man who was healed. With a loud voice, he glorified God. He fell down at the feet of Jesus. He gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. A leper, strike one. A Samaritan, culturally speaking, strike two. Separated from society, strike three. And yet he fell at the feet of Jesus to thank him. One of the scarcest virtues of the human race is gratitude. And unfortunately, that scarcity now exists Amongst believers, every now and again I like to read about old preachers. Not old in the sense of gray-haired preachers, but old in the sense of dead, like they pastored 100 plus years ago. One of the things I like to be reminded of is it was just as hard for them as it is for me, and people were just as cantankerous then as they are now. Alexander White was a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. He once visited, this account said, an elderly parishioner. That's an old person. He went to this elderly parishioner, and he sat, and as he listened to her, she complained at length about everything and everyone. Finally, it says, with his hat back in his hand, as Alexander White rose to bid her goodbye, his only comment to her was from Psalm 103, verse 2, where he said, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits.'" That is chastisement. In a cynical world where we are quick to criticize and we far too easily take the miraculous and amazing for granted, we are reminded to forget not all his benefits. Incredibly, the psalmist will write in Psalm 68, 19, he daily loadeth us with benefits and lamentations We read that mercy and compassion are new every single morning. Have you overlooked the fact that you woke up today and that was a miraculous and gracious event from God? Have you overlooked the fact that you are saved and that's a miraculous and gracious intervention from God? Have you overlooked all of the amazing and miraculous things in your life and you've escaped because you feel thankful or you think thankful but God knows who's stopping to say thank you to Him. Resist the attitude of the masses. When they all run headlong in one direction, too busy, too uninterested, too defiant to see the goodness of God's mercy and grace, you turn and go to Him and glorify Him. Say thank you. Because a thankful heart God can work with and an unthankful heart is fertile soil for sin. See, I don't know exactly what God has done for me. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says this, if you're a believer, you were dead and trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in love, by his amazing grace and incredible mercy, saved you and quickened you to life with the Holy Spirit. You were, in Ephesians 2, under the dominion of the devil, the prince of the power of the air, but you've now been adopted into the family of God. You were dominated by the passions of your flesh, but now you have the capacity to live out the fruit of the Spirit. You were by birth and by your natural state a child of wrath, but in salvation you've been gifted eternal life. If you can't stop and thank God for that, you've missed. If Jesus were to walk into the back of this auditorium and our first and natural response was not to get down on the floor as low as we could go, Acknowledging how bad we've whiffed on a lot of the pitches life has thrown us If someone was audacious enough to stand up and say I am so glad you're here because I have gotten the bad end of this deal We'd be amazed you say no, I feel thankful No, I am thankful when was the last time You stopped and glorified God for the things that God has done for you Would you please for just a moment bow your heads with me?